Where will we work now? The Future of Office, a Tangent original series. By now, odds are you've either worked from a co-working space, heard about them, or are listening from one right now. And today, over 3 million use co-working spaces worldwide. The way and where we work has changed forever. Remote, hybrid, flexible, it's a whole new world out there. Yet, face-to-face interaction is more needed than ever. In this new series, Jeffrey Berman, Zach Ahrens and Edward Cohen will explore the future of the workplace and how office spaces are being reshaped. We'll take you on a journey to understand how the very nature of office buildings is evolving. How did we get here? And where are we heading? Join us as we explore the modern office and how prop tech founders, real estate owners and operators and VC investors are reimagining its role across cities. Because in real life, and in office, will always be where innovation meets collaboration. Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Hi there. Welcome to Tangent. I am Jeffrey Berman. Today on Tangent, we have Elliot Brown, co-author of the book, The Cult of We. We work Adam Newman in The Great Startup Delusion. Elliot's book was depicted in Apple TV Plus series We Crashed and is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, a Financial Times, Fortune, and NPR best book of the year. Hi, Elliot. Where does this podcast find you? Happy to be here. I'm in London, where I've lived for the past year and a half. Bloody hell. Today, I'm actually <laughs> recording exactly one block away from 154 Grand Street, the location of the first ever WeWork in Soho, New York where the magic all started. I gotta say, I just have to say it. I loved We Crashed. Jared Leto, also in the in the show, was absolutely ethereal. Like I thought I was, I'm sure a lot of it was, well, it was, there was a lot that different from the book, but so good. And I'm just curious from your perspective, I know we're jumping right in, but did you watch it? Yeah, yeah, I, I saw it when it came out. How did you feel like, like it stuck to the source material and, yeah, I mean, j- just to be clear, I, I think they, they they read our book, uh, and definitely t- there were some scenes in it that that you know they, they were sort of doing their own thing. I thought it was really good. Like, I mean, I was expecting it to probably be like sixty percent accurate, and it seemed like it was probably like eighty five ninety, which I mean, it was like, wow, this really did happen like that. Uh, and I thought like Jared Leto was was a really great Adam. He he kind of j- just you know got the whole vibe of the guy, if if maybe a little bit shorter. Um, than him. But uh, yeah, I, I, I thought it was a little long. It was like, our, I mean, our audio book was probably like 13 hours and this thing was eight hours. It's like, wow, you really <laughs> could have done this in two or three. <laughs> yeah, it was so good though. Sorry, I already went on a tangent. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> That's what we do here. That's what we do here. That's what it's all about. I did not watch the series. However, I did binge listen to the book. And honestly, I didn't even know what could else have been dramatized uh, beyond what what the book describes because it's already drama infused. Um, But Elliot, so you covered WeWork first as a real estate reporter and later as a venture capital and finance reporter for the Wall Street Journal in San Francisco. I want to ask you, why why did you write the book? Why why did you think it's important to tell the story and, and learn from it? Yeah, so WeWork we was always kind of a, a minor obsession of mine and then grew to be a major obsession as as, as it got kind of bigger, crazier, more valuable, and, and then um, 
spectacularly imploded. And I think just, you know, me and my co-author Maureen, when, when WeWork was just about to try to go public and, and it blew up, we were just every day, sometimes three times a day, just finding these new crazy details about Adam Newman and, and, and the company and how it was run and its corporate governance and, and the money being burned. And it was just like, th- this stuff does not happen very often. Like we don't just, the stories like this just, you know, don't land on your beat very, very frequently when, you know, you're really kind of feel like you're in the room because, you know, I've been covering it for years. Maureen was super close on the finance side and we yeah just, just felt like we had our, our fingers really on the pulse of this like totally fa- fantastic story about um a mania and a bubble that that is still uh rippling today absolutely i mean not only did we work most we work investors lost everything uh employees also didn't get any upside in the eventual ipo uh well well the founder adam newman did take home well over one billion dollars, uh, of course, enabled by by SoftBank. The the early investors, really early investors, whom I know a few, made a killing. This is anecdotal; it's secondhand from someone I know well and who was an investor. But I think there was like an opportunity to sell out at a twenty billion dollar valuation. And <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and so he took that and did really, really well. Like it bought him a house in the Hamptons, it bought him <laughs> an apartment in the city. And like, it was, and so it's 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 interesting because this, this is the point I was trying to make was more about the board than the actual, like it, it, it happens that investors along the fundraising life cycle of a company, some will do well, some will not do well. Ideally, all investors do well, but that's just not how it works. Some you have in later rounds, sometimes you have structure, et cetera, et cetera. But I would really love to talk about how the how the board was interacting with the company and allowing a lot of these shenanigans to happen because why? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's this these these kind of weird incentives in the startup and venture capital world where um, our definition, a layman's definition on the street of was it a success versus some board member or venture capitalist definition, which is did I get a return on my money? So there's all sorts of failed companies where investors see it as a total killing and they thought it was a huge home run. Uh, but, but you know, you or me, these things don't even exist. They went out of business. Um, so yeah, happy to dive in on, on, on sort of like, you know, the, the board and their governance. And, and, and like, I mean, to me, this, this, the WeWork story is, is completely one of, of, um, a set of, of enablers that, that kind of just collectively deluded themselves about what WeWork was. They kept feeding it more money and, and just kept saying yes to Adam because he was good at raising more money from other people. And so sort of collectively, they, they weren't looking around and saying like, this isn't a tech company. Um, this is a, a, a money losing real estate company, which is what it was. But instead, they, they yeah, just kind of pumped up the mystique and valuation. Yeah. Something that I was uh, kind of surprised while listening to the book was that, you know, I, I was like maybe halfway through the book. And I was like, where, where is SoftBank? Where, when are they entering? Uh, like, you know, they definitely put the most fuel to the fire. I mean, for context, uh, I think recently they just said that the losses on WeWork were uh, around $14 billion, uh, which is seven times the value of WeWork's similarly sized competitor, uh, IWG uh, Regis, which 
a company that was founded in the eighties, office, uh, you know, providing office space. Um, they were not branded as nicely. They didn't have as charismatic or as a uh, good salesman of a founder, but we, we know how to value these things, right? They're a real estate company, uh, providing office spaces or, or sub, you know, leasing and subleasing then to workers. So I think that, that really surprised me in terms of how, you know, we, we just love a good story. No, that's, that's a big, that's a big part of it. So I'm a venture capitalist. So. Yeah, you know, Camber Creek, we invest in companies that are accretive to the built world. We looked at WeWork a number of times and we could never wrap our head around how this was technology. We looked at Notel and got closer to them and then realized, same thing, right? Like this is this is not technology. Not that they weren't, and here's here's where it might be controversial, not that they weren't great companies or great ideas. Like here's what I give Adam credit for, Adam and Miguel, and I suppose their whole founding cohort. Yes, flexible office space, small spaces existed well before we work, but they changed the relationship and the way employers looked at flexible space in a way that no one had done before. So we can separate valuation, we can separate shenanigans at the board level, shenanigans at the corporate level, but if you just look at the concept itself, we work as a concept Co-working as a concept, as a flexible, malleable spa- space for people to go that don't want to be in a in a nine to five normal stuffy office, they changed that I think permanently, and so I do give them a lot of credit for that. It's everything else that's the like, oh wait a second, how did this company get the billions in funding? Where did all that go? Why were they signing all these leases? Why did they let this guy buy a plane and smoke dope on the plane? Like. What what was happening there? And that's the questions like, where was the board? <laughs> yeah, just on that notion, I, I guess I have, you know, often wondered, you know, today WeWork is, you know, in something like 700 locations or 700 cities. It's super ubiquitous. It's the biggest tenant in New York and, and, and London. And work, you know, the way a lot of offices and companies approach work have changed. Would we have had any of that change if, if they weren't subsidized by venture capital? Meaning if they had just started and, and, you know, tried to bootstrap, tried to, to run a company based on sort of normal merits without portraying it as a tech company and gotten funding that way, uh, my guess is, I would love to hear your thoughts, but my guess is, you know, it would still just be five, 10 locations in New York and a handful of mom and pop operators doing something, uh, you know, in every city around the country. Because um, I think we were, and its competitors, then sort of just drafted off the venture capital that, that, that was pouring into WeWork. Yeah, I think you're right. And there, there's a broader point that I think you're teasing at. Because if we look at Lyft and Uber, and I'm, I'm not following the stock, so I don't know if they're, if or DoorDash, I don't know if any of these companies are profitable yet. But yeah, I think Uber's finally figured it out. So Uber's probably, they were fueled by venture capital for a decade plus massive losses subsidizing their their customer set so the question is 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 like is it necessarily a bad thing i'm not shedding a tear for softbank yeah they (laughs) lost billions of dollars that's boohoo that's their fault but they did help create this revolution and if we think syllogistically what the effect of the weworkization of offices so i don't know how much you know about real estate finance but when yep. you when you so you probably know a lot when you buy a building you typically look at something called a 10-year Argus run 
right? Like you want to understand the cash flows of the building. That no longer that that notion doesn't really exist anymore. Now, part of that is a big part of that is the pandemic, of course. But this idea of flexibility, plus this idea of okay, well, people are now working from home. We don't really utilize space in the same way that we used to use it. It's I think that WeWork played. I don't know how large a part, but some part in changing that dynamic such that the way that this entire asset class is going to be looked at from a financing perspective may change. And the way people use their office may change. The way that people are blending lifestyle and work style has changed. So like we have we have 300 plus real estate strategics that are investors in our fund. I'm not going to name any of them, but one of one a very large one very well known around the globe if you look at their offices now they look more like a we work than they did in there when when the company was founded a hundred years ago really interesting interesting i want to take back shortly for the comparison between uber and airbnb because uh during WeWork's rise that was uh, a lot of the justification for just increasing the valuation of WeWork. right however I, I can't wrap my head around that comparison because Uber wasn't renting cars and Airbnb wasn't renting apartments or homes while WeWork was on the hook for rent. Um, now to Adam's credit or, or to, to WeWork's credit, they did get a lot of things right. Like, like, you know, in terms of the vision, uh, not only, you know, the desire for community, even though, uh, in reality, uh, as we know from the book, uh, when WeWork was running uh, surveys internally, if if members were friends or members knew each other, they actually found out that that wasn't true. And me personally, when I worked at East 57th and Lex uh, WeWork, which was a beautiful space, I, I also felt that. I tried connecting with my fellow neighbors and and it wasn't easy. Uh, there was no such, uh, you know, real community in practice. Attention all hospitality owners and operators. Are you tired of spending endless hours managing guest communication and figuring out ways to upsell your services? Well, we've got some exciting news for you. Introducing Host AI, the revolutionary AI concierge designed exclusively for Airbnb and short-term rental hosts and boutique hotels. Say goodbye to endless hours spent on guest messaging. Host AI automates the process, ensuring that you're only alerted when matters are truly urgent. That means more time for you to focus on what really matters, providing exceptional guest experiences. Host AI isn't just a time saver, it's a revenue booster. Unlock personalized upselling opportunities triggered by past guest conversations and calendar inefficiencies. Watch as your revenue grows effortlessly with targeted and timely offers. Imagine training an expert AI model on your properties in just minutes. How? By seamlessly combining your PMS and external databases such as HostAway and Google Sheets. That's right, with HostAI, you can harness the power of artificial intelligence to transform the way you manage your properties and communicate with guests. What's the key to satisfied guests? Quick, convenient, and accurate responses. HostAI delivers just that. Enhance your guests' experience with prompt and precise information related to their stay, leaving them with a lasting impression. Ready to transform your hospitality game? Visit hostai.app to learn more and get started today. Don't miss out on the chance to streamline your operations, boost revenue, and elevate your guest satisfaction with HostAI at hostai.app. 
at the end of 2022, WeWork was still operating across 44 million square feet, which is the equivalent of around 20 Empire State buildings. So Elliot, I want to ask you, even though WeWork's valuation did keep going up, you know, at least on paper, uh, until almost the very end of Adam Newman's reign, many things were going wrong internally. According to you, you know, what specific moment or moments in time do you think it really all started going downhill for WeWork? Yeah, I think the way we, we, we you know, when we sort of like dove in and really did the the, the the kind of autopsy of everything, the way we effectively saw it was that it, it was this crescendo of venture capital, of of Adam's ego, of of sort of like crazy spending and and crazy luxury and and expanding ambitions through the end of 2018. Um, and so at that point, I mean, you know, by, by, by the time you got to sort of like summer 2018, that's when they were discussing a, a, a purchase that where SoftBank was going to basically buy WeWork and, and put up $20 billion and value it at, at 45 or 50. Um, Adam suddenly started talking to AIDS about, we found all this stuff. We're like, yeah, I mean, he, he was started talking in this way where everyone just kind of normalized like, oh, well, that's just Adam. But he's like, one day I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, I, I would be president of the world if I were to run for anything. And, um, it, you know, he, he, started to tell people that that a, a, a Middle East peace treaty will be signed in a WeWork, um, which today particularly sounds not likely. They started a, a kindergarten, a preschool aimed at elevating the entrepreneurship and the very not good name. <laughs> we grow. <laughs> yeah. His houses grew to, to, I think that then it was seven or eight uh, was by the time he got one. He got, he got a house in, in California with a room shaped like a guitar. Um, Wait, you don't have one of those? <laughs> Weird. And they owned three at the Hamptons, one one of which they didn't use. Where do you think they would put their cars? Come on. <laughs> I, I, Wait, I, what I about? Excuse me. The hairdressers and the surf instructors deserve also their own house. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Very good. You're you're, you're, you're losing me with all this bashing because, like, <laughs> I I get it. You know, I have three different Lego sets of houses <laughs> and I put my tiny babies in each one, you know, it's not, it's like same, same, but different. Yeah. So he was basically always out of touch, but by, by the time you got to 2019, I think he didn't really see it or late, you know, late 2018. And yet then people around him would be like, so the entourage has grown to literally the hairdresser, the surf coach, the surf coaches, you know, family nannies for the surf coaches, family. Yeah, this is real. I mean, this is, they would follow these people all around. I and mean, then, then in in the summer, I think it was 2019, they rented a, a you know two to three other houses in the Hamptons for the surf coaches. They had lots of them, and you know, sort of other staff that, that, that would come in. Yeah. Now we were pulled off a lot of tricks. Some of them were uh, creative and uh, original. Some of them were just you know borderline uh, illegal, especially on the accounting side. But uh, I want to ask you, Elliot, what, what tricks you think had the most impact in WeWork's trajectory or, or which ones uh, shocked you the most, you know, at the company level? I mean, first one that comes to mind is, is how WeWork paid rent, right? Uh, and their concept of community-adjusted EBITDA, uh, which it, in essence, it gave new companies renting space a first year free. So new locations looked super profitable because it, it wasn't yet incurring also in the cost of that rent either. For example, in 2017, that turned 100 million in losses to 200 million in profit on paper. 
Yeah, community adjusted EBITDA was certainly the, the funniest name trick. I, I would say their their accounting was that was not the biggest thing. I mean, they, they were what they were trying to do with with community adjusted EBITDA is what lots of companies try to do, just with less funny names, which is try to show a profit when you have losses. And uh, in the end, when they were trying to IPO, the the SEC essentially struck it down. So it was really bond investors who who sort of got that. Info. I, I think w- w- at least sort of at you know at the end of the day, I think Adam's skill was was not lying about numbers, which you know he really didn't do. Um, but but getting people to you know he present the real numbers, you you or I could look at them, but but the way he talked, you just not even see what what the reality was. So he you know people often ask about comparisons with Elizabeth Holmes. You know, I think she was essentially saying this box that that does blood tests this works, and it didn't. Uh, you know, he was saying this this box this is a tech company, and and it's it's going to be really profitable in the future. Um, and and you know, anyone who would like actually look at the box and then look at the numbers would be like, well, it looks like a real estate company, and and loses money. It, it actually performs worse than a real estate company. Uh, but but his magic w- was when you're in the room with him, uh, moving past that. And he did this to really sophisticated people. Like we have this anecdote where where he he got a, a really you know star kind of um, fund manager from Fidelity, you know, which had already passed on on um, the company had already passed on an earlier round. But he just got the guy to you know within minutes just kind of eat out of his hand talking about the. How, how he's like, ah, you have energy. We work, we work spaces, they have energy. Um, you get it. Uh, and so then a, a, uh, a, you know, lower level person at Fidelity flagged like, hey, we're running the numbers. This doesn't look good. And she was overruled by this fund manager who just said, no, 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 I believe in Adam. It's it's about the future and, and we're doing it. And, and, you know, that's how they put in hundreds of millions at, at a, uh, well, that was $10 billion valuation. So I'm I'm torn about this because there is something to be said for the charismatic founder with what I'll call, or actually my father used to call the X factor. And again, let's pull, let's, let's pull this apart. Let's pull the, the massive fundraisers, even though obviously it's related, let's pull the shenanigans. The fact of the matter is he, and the founding team did create something that changed our industry. So in some sense, that what that person felt was real, right? Like there was that, I cannot believe I'm getting caught up in this. But then it becomes, okay, is this a fiscally responsible, am I following my fiduciary duty as a fiduciary for other people's money, investing in something when the numbers don't work? So let's break those two things apart because I think shame on them for investing when somebody actually flagged, hey, the numbers don't work. But I also understand that I want to be a part of this. I think this person is going to make it work. Now, that level, again, at 10 billion, I don't understand how they came to that. But I do as a VC who meets with people all the time. I have met founders. I have a very large angel portfolio. I no longer do this. But the all the angel investments I've made have been based on the the person, and less so the idea. Because great people will be able to pivot the idea to make it work, and some of them have done really well because the people have been so good. That's where you start talking. Like I'll say again, where was the board? 
Where was the board, like, was the board not reviewing these financials and seeing like, wait a second, this isn't adding up? Or were they just along for the ride and saying like, yeah, whatever? So I, I think what you said really captures it, which is there's this kind of meme in Silicon Valley that that these well-spoken visionary founders are are these omnipotent beings and you just need to, uh, you know, park money with them and and back them and, and they will do amazing things because that's such a meme. That, that that and because you have funds like Andreessen Horowitz and Founders Fund that kind of pushed this notion, you know, ten plus years ago, uh, that changed the market in Silicon Valley where people gave these founders the keys, and, and, and so they it, like the notion of if if you're just saying, um, you know, I'm going to open a coffee shop. Uh, I have no money. Would would you give me all the money to do that and complete control, even if you own ninety five percent of the company? Uh, like no one would say yes, right? Like if, if you're funding 95% of the business or 100% of the business and, and, and you own 95%, you're going to want to say. And what happened in Silicon Valley is under the, the sort of, you know, flag wrapped around them as 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 omnipotent founders, uh, then you, you suddenly had people like Adam Newman uh, with no control from their board. So he did have a board. Uh, they had very smart people on there who I think kind of deluded themselves and and now are are sorry about that for the most part. Uh, but um, had he wanted to, had they really voted, moved against him um, and caused him trouble, he he could have fired them uh, and, and, and pushed them off. That would have been a big move. And I actually usually argue the opposite point, which is, you know, when a, a $63 million jet came up for, for board approval, yeah, it was passed unanimously. And But then you ask each of these people like, well, if you, none of you liked it, why didn't you vote against it? Because then it wouldn't have passed. But, but but at the end of the day, Adam really did have the trump card, which is that that he controlled the board. Yeah, Adam Adam had ten votes to one uh, in the board, and he was trying to get twenty to one, uh, similar to M Mark Zuckerberg. Not sure if he still has that. Um, but I think all of this is is explained by incentives in a way. Not only the the board members that we work, but also. Uh, you know, more, you know, the, the the really savvy seasoned people that were at Fidelity and mutual funds and that were also at JP Morgan. Like uh, there was there was this FOMO, as it's described in the book, that they wanted to be involved in the next big tech thing that they felt they had missed the boat on, you know, in the first wave of of the Amazons and the Facebooks. And and this was their their shot. And I mean, yeah, it's fascinating what what humans and incentives uh, end up end up doing in this sense. Um, something that I I I I'd like to hone in a bit. You you both hinted at the this uh, evolution of of VC strategies to funding companies uh, and how they view or, or how they value founders. Right uh, back in the day, uh, you know, it was first thought about the idea or, or the business to disrupt, and then VCs went on to to find that the founder to lead this. Um, and and once it grew, you know, founder then stood aside as the uh, and VCs would handpick a professional, quote unquote, CEO. Uh, I think Bezos, uh, Zuckerberg, Jobs really changed this, right? Driven founders with skill for for salesmanship uh, really changed this for a good reason. But yeah, maybe ten or twenty to one for any given individual is is a bit uh, outrageous or is asking for trouble. 
Yeah, I mean, Bezos doesn't have founder control. He, he or didn't. He he, he just owned um, you know a large chunk of the stock. So and he was just doing a good job there. So it's Steve Jobs who who all this is sort of based on. He didn't have founder control. He was fired and then brought back and still didn't have founder control. I think essentially it was a creation of VCs trying to look for an edge uh, to say like, hey, founder, I'll give you extra votes if you take my money. Um, and, and sort of created this this now standard in the market, which which uh, can be really dangerous for investors. So it's interesting because I want to be really careful with how I phrase this because it's a negotiation, right? Like like you alluded to, if a company or a quote unquote hot founder is trying to raise money, and he or she has or is selling a great story like Elizabeth Holmes clearly did and like Adam clearly did. And you have investors willing to cede control. Again, I don't know whether or not that's a bad thing or that's just the market acting and reacting. In other words, when I'm looking at it, at sending a term sheet, I'm going to negotiate for the best deal I can for, my, for the benefit of my investors. And then if and when I become a member of the board of that company, having the best interests of the stakeholders, stockholders, investors in mind while I'm acting. And if you see that as an investor, if you say, you know what, I'm giving this money, well, then shouldn't the investors in those funds be second guessing their investment in those funds. Shouldn't the investors who blindly back, I won't name names, but certain venture funds with massive amounts of money from their pensions or endowments or et cetera, scratch their heads and say, huh, maybe they're not doing the homework they say they're doing. Because I don't, I don't necessarily fault a founder for taking advantage of the leverage that he or she might have in a negotiation where there are lots of parties trying to pour money into this person's startup. I it's it it's you know it's very easy for me to see both sides of this. I mean I think at the individual level it, it, people are are sort of you know doing the 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 the, the rational thing. It's but, but there's a reason that you can't I mean there's a reason the public index funds don't allow dual class shop, stock. Uh, there, there there there's a reason that that you know th this is generally like seen as really problematic by corporate governance people in in the world because venture is not a very like efficient market, right? I mean I mean and you know overall it's it does worse than than the S&P uh generally. Um not if not if you measure at the top 2021. Um but, but like oh you know it's 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 not transparent at all it's 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 highly illiquid it, it takes you know 5 to 15 years to find the result so what happens in venture is people are making drawing these trend lines and sort of making these assumptions about what's going to happen only on the way up while while everything is going great and, and they're like well, look at Travis Kalanick he's doing awesome let's do what he did uh, and it's like, okay, well, wait two years and that narrative can completely change. But but suddenly all these founders have, you know, large uh, voting shares and large pay packages, which is what a lot, another thing that, that a lot of them had. I want to ask you both, uh, you know, like in terms of this culture of optimism and cheerleading, I mean, humans, we've always liked, needed leaders, right? With vision that rally the troops, that 
you know, really, uh, you know, the, that bring on the, the necessary elements combined with a inspiring storytelling. Can you point to any like real estate or, or tech leaders that strike a balance between boosting teams to achieve greatness while also keeping uh, themselves and, and the team humble and grounded currently or historically? I do. I have, I have a number of examples, but the one specific one I want to use, I can't because the company is still, but <laughs> I, well, this is a company that, that began its life in 2020. It did 8 million in business in 2020 and was profitable. It did 34 million in business in 2021 profitable. It did 57 million in business in 2022 profitable all bootstrapped. And this is a deal that we helped create with it. This person wasn't looking to raise money and it took me about a year to get them to agree, we can help accelerate your business. These people could be the, the, the very type of people that would have this mindset of my poop doesn't stink and I'm the greatest and all this wonderful stuff. And that's been the exact opposite. Not only that, they were rational about, about valuation. We ended up, and I'm not going to say the number, but it was one of the better deals that we'll ever make because each side understood the value the other side was bringing. And there was none of the, uh, Elliot, I love the, 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 the term you used before, that, that memeization of, it, it just, and, and when people find out who this person and who these people are, they're like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. I'll bet they paid a fortune for that. They're not going to know what price we paid, but so there are people and, and this person has overseen a company that's gone from uh, 80 people to over 300 in a year. Magnificent manager. There, Look, there are people that are incredibly capable, that are incredibly uh, talented, and that are rather adroit at all the manifestations that are necessary in business that don't necessarily need to buy a $63 million jet and smoke dope on it, right? Like, I think we're talking about outlier cases here. I mean, maybe, Elliot, you you actually, you're on this all day. Would you say this these are outlier cases or or would you say there's a fundamental problem or both? Um, I think that the the the, the companies that that tend to dominate and, and sort of grow fast and and you know are magnets to venture capital do tend to be, be run by you know people closer to the Adam Newman school than like the Warren Buffett school. I mean that's just sort of what everyone gets excited about. Um, and and you know salespeople are are what would bring in money. Uh, the, the one to tie it to WeWork, I I think one way I'd answer this is is. Um, if you look at, at the CEO of Industrious, uh, the, the, the kind of the lift to, to WeWork's Uber or, or maybe the, the tiny lift to, to WeWork's Uber. Um, Jamie Hadari is, is this, the CEO there. He's, uh, you know, seems like a sort of like academic who, who had a couple MBA courses and, and, uh, you know, is, is in charge of this co-working company that's competing with WeWork. And, and he got his, like, you know, went on the jet with Adam and was like, why are you fe feeding me tequila at 10 a.m.? Uh, they were Bloody Marys, like that, that, that type of vibe. And, and, um, it, you know, he's still standing. His company exists, uh, today and isn't bankrupt. Some of Eddie's company convened is really large. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, right. Exactly. Like those guys are, are sort of like, you know, more boring real estate guys as that could be. Whether or not they end up being good venture investments, 
yeah, we didn't invest it either. So I, I right, right, and both both might not be. I mean, I, I imagine both aren't going to be great. Um, you, you know, it is certainly not like going to get the days of getting tech company valuations for a co working space are, are, are gone. Um, but the, you know, they're, they're real companies, uh, at, at least I haven't called convene lately, but, but industry is still is. Yeah, yeah. no, convene certainly is. I look, I, th- there's, there's a, there's a place for all of it. And, and again, I, I do think it comes back to the people that are, that are around you that should be facilitating good governance and this is also part of a venture capital problem like there's such a thing as sitting on too many boards there's such a thing as in being involved in too many things like there's a natural limit to how many boards i can sit on and still do my day-to-day because if you're if you're if you are a responsible board member you're on top of the company i i actually i can't remember where i read this this was brilliant someone was saying being a good board member is like being a grandparent not a parent if it's a parent, it's too close, right? But if it's a grandparent, and maybe in certain communities where the grandparents are really close to the whole families, like not not like the grandparents that see you once or twice a year, but the grandparents that take an active involvement in your life, because that's how it ought to be, unless things look like they're getting dicey, and you should be able to see the signals of what's coming when you're reviewing the board financials. You should be wondering, asking questions. That's that's part of being a a responsible board members all about. Absolutely. Well, one example that comes to mind is uh, actually someone we hosted on Tangent, Marshall Cox, the founder and CEO at Kelvin, which are helping buildings uh, basically become more carbon efficient. And he did say that during fundraising, I mean, he's a scientist, a PhD, and during the previous 10 years, something that, that really hurt them in in terms of fundraising was that they were following the numbers and, and sharing them as they were. They were not uh, exaggerating or promising the moon uh, while still creating value uh, that will be, you know, that will hopefully be a, a viable so, business. So, so it's funny mm-hmm. because from a venture capital perspective, so let, 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 let's look at, this, at the landscape. This is not what we do. I want to be very clear. Like there's a reason that we have done as well as we do because we do not have this mindset. But you'll have certain investors who come in more sophisticated early on and say, I want to sell the A or the B and make a quick two, three, four, five X. And they're basically selling the sizzle, right? You're meeting the you're meeting the people, you're helping them craft the story and then boom, you're out. Then there are the more sophisticated investors that are like the pre-IPOs, like the Wellingtons that can see like, okay, this thing is going pretty well. If it's going well, then we're going to have, there'll be no added structure, no no weird liquidation preferences, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they're the ones that the, the, the smart money that comes in the end that typically can compound their return in a rather short period of time. Great. The life cycle investors are the ones that have to be the, the most careful and they have to be the ones that should be hewing to the entrepreneurs that are telling it like it is and should have diligence that responds to, oh, let's uncover what's actually happening here and make an informed and educated decision. Far too often, because Ellie, you said it before, you're like, as a as an asset class, doesn't really perform very well because if you're just throwing spaghetti at the wall, not a whole lot of it's gonna stick. Right? That's that's part of the reason why 
we're we're very sector specific. We invest in what we know, and so if you, I I think as an industry, and it's not just venture capital, right? Like people in general, they want to they they want to feel like they're part of something. They want to feel like they're part of something energetic and sexy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's like yeah, but would I rather invest in a in a Marshall Cox type business over a Adam Newman type business? Because of the type of investor we are, all day long. Interesting. Jeff, want to ask you and also Elliot, claiming that you deserve a tech valuation while actually being a real estate business. WeWork did a bunch of acquisitions that were trying to help it become or pretend to be a tech company, including acquiring Flat Iron School, which it paid $28 million, uh, which was a coding bootcamp in 2017. Uh, also acquired Team which is a software that lets people book meetings for $100 million. And they also bought Managed by Q for $220 million, which is an office management startup. Would there have been or are there currently any companies out there that they could have acquired to help them justify a tech valuation or transform their business into having a tech valuation? No, period. No, the, unless they would have bought Facebook. Right, like they're they're not a technology company. They were a poorly run real estate company. They leased space, so they took on heavy liability, invested a boat ton in their fit out, and then tried to lease it at one point five x, and sometimes did it at less than that. It was just you can't package that any better. And they bought a they bought a lot of companies. They bought a company that we were we were actually diligencing. Cool company, access control. Uh, I think these guys actually were smart. They got half half cash, half stock, so they actually did pretty well. That was just enablement of their real estate enterprise. It wasn't turning them into a technology company. So no, that's my my opinion. Want to discuss some of the like missed opportunities here, which you know we we're hinting at now with the previous question, like the community building aspect i mean they kind of went halfway there with its promise like they they already had a bunch of young hungry innovative people in their buildings i feel they could have done a much better job at curating you know and, and connecting these members to potentially incubate new new companies and launch new ideas like that could have really i feel set them apart that is hard. Uh, like, I think WeWork was good at it. If you talk to people there, they, they, they will swear that in their first few locations, they were were really good at it. They had, you know, sort of stumbled on or, or made some special sauce that got people to really interact. You talk to other incubators in, in other cities and, and at the time, and, and some of them would say the same thing. Others were bad at it. And like definitely different co-working spaces had different vibes. Some were good, some were bad at a community. Um, I think it's probably really hard to scale it, uh, but but really what happened is is yeah we, we work couldn't keep growing that fast. You, you couldn't do both. You you can't be um, you know the world's corporate real estate provider, which is what they were sort of growing to become, and and that's what had to become a lot of their tenants, and uh, be be you know a community of creators, as I think is one of their various taglines. Uh, I, I I mean. Yeah, you, you, there, there's only so many freelancers in a city and they aren't going to fill 10 million square feet of space. Right. Good point. Good point. Last thing, something I found super interesting was that it was the public markets who stopped kind of, you know, WeWork when they released their first S1 uh, when they were trying to go public. 
Uh, however, during COVID years, uh, it kind of flipped the balance between who was driving these valuations between private and public. So if if WeWork was propelled by private markets uh, and stopped by pro- public, now it seems like the private markets are the ones you know showing caution and kind of expecting or demanding companies to show a path to profitability while public markets were going uh, wild with the Robin Hood and the meme economy. Uh, where do you think we are now? Yeah, so so I think right, it, it sort of it changes by the by, by the year. Like I think 2019 or so was the, the 2018 was was the peak of the private markets and um, uh, being kind of way out ahead of the public. 2021, the public markets were were going bonkers as as were the crypto markets, whatever those are. You know, the, he, both both right now are, are are pretty restrained. If you have a sheen of AI, I think in both the public and the private, it's pretty clear you get you get some huge uh, like that that that's the special sauce today uh, to to get some you know huge lift. But you know, you look at that multiples with like pretty like easy rudimentary way of, of valuing something. Real estate, you do it with cap rates. You get in the, the markets, you do it with revenue or or. Uh, earnings multiples and and like those are are sort of have pulled back on both to to be more uh kind of historic to, to revert to historic norms and it, it turns out we weren't in some you know brave new world where suddenly 100x revenue was normal elliot brown co-author of the book the cult of we thank you so much for coming to tangent today and for sharing your your lessons and your insights uh pleasure to meet you thanks so much for having me really appreciate it Thanks for listening to Where Will We Work Now? The Future of Office, a Tangent original series. Don't forget to follow, rate and review us and share the show with a friend. This series is produced by Edward Cohen. If you'd like your company or organisation to be featured across Tangent's community, you can email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.